With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hey, folks, back for a proper podcast here. I'm Ed McGrogan with once again Steve Tigner. Uh, Monday, we're into November. We have said goodbye to the WTA season official. Well, that's actually not true, and I wasn't even doing that on purpose. There actually is another WTA event this week. Um, for you know, for all intents and purposes, though, I think for this conversation, we uh, will we will declare the season over with, of all things, an Agnieszka Radwanska victory in Singapore. And uh, a pretty, we should certainly start with her, Steve, and, uh, and you know, just, you know, she was on the brink of elimination a couple days before when we last got together, and from that point on, you know, put together, you know, two, two great victories, and probably wins the biggest title of her career. Yeah, she won the matches she needed to win. I mean, she actually lost, it's not often that a round robin be, turns into triple elimination. Um, Kvitova, Rudwanska, and the woman she beat in the final, Kvitova each had two losses. That's one more than one more than the women they beat in the semis, Muguruza and Sharapova. So, so you know, Rudwanska won just what she needed to win and nothing more. Um, but she was good. You know, she was really good through the last three matches. Um, basically, at the time when she thought her season was over, she, you know, she had basically stopped practicing before her round robin match with Halep, and she wins that. Um, really plays probably the best tennis she's played all year. Really pretty vintage stuff for her, and then she continued that against um, Muguruza and and Kvitova. I guess you would say for for Muguruza, she's learned maybe you, you don't play singles and doubles at this tournament. She was she was pretty tired um, by the semifinal. It's kind of amazing that she got as far as she did. Even yeah, that, yeah, I did. Even did, in that match. Yeah, I did realize that Muguruza did, you know, did the, uh, you know, both events here. You know, I can say it certainly is, I think, tough to say no to playing doubles, not only just for the point that you're you're with somebody and you'd be kind of letting them down in a way, but, I mean, the point the point's clear that, it, you know, with an already kind of demanding schedule and, Toward the end of the year, it was uh, it was probably you know it was too much to ask, I guess. But you really wouldn't say that after the round robin stage of the tournament, where you know where she went three and zero, uh, and you know even though Rodwanska comes out of this with the victory and uh, is you know obviously wins the, the final match of the year, you know Muguruza, I think you can only really take away. Some some big positives from her from this event from the 
you know, the last part of the year in general, we, we often, I think, see players who who do well at one particular slam um, kind of we've seen so many players ride off of that result for the whole year but you do like to see um, you know after a little bit of a, a lull you know well after the Wimbledon final which he reached Muguruza ended this year in a high note and I think you know her stock is certainly way up there going into 2016 yeah maybe the lesson is don't try not to qualify in both events if you can um, easier said than done yeah <laughs> But Muguruza, yeah, no, I think the story, you know, the story of the of the tournament itself is Redwanska coming out, seeming to come out of nowhere and playing such good tennis to win, and also beating a couple of big hitters, Muguruza and Kvitova, that she doesn't usually beat. She's lost to Muguruza four times this year. She has a bad record against Kvitova, um, but she kind of turned the tables on them finally. But the real story going into next year is is Muguruza her. Her late season, her finishing number three, um, winning three matches here, even if she didn't win the fourth, and actually, in a way, acquitting herself pretty well in the fourth match. You know, that's the that's the thing that we'll, we'll probably remember the most as the new season starts. But with Redwanska, it's harder to say. She started the year so poorly, lost in the first one round at the French, and you know was down to number fourteen in the rankings. Now she has the biggest tournament of her career. I mean the. You can see what it meant to her. She was in tears afterward. I think su- surprise and just and kind of amazement to finally break through. She's had some tough losses late at Grand Slams, two three-set losses in the semifinals at Wimbledon. Um, of, you know, loss in the final there. I think she, you know, she may have been getting to the point where she thought she wasn't really cut out to win those kind of tournaments. So, so that was a great moment for her. We'll see what it means. I mean, she was back playing pretty much the best tennis of her career over the weekend. You know. You know what that means and what she can, how much she can take from that into 2016. We'll see, but it's good. You know, as far as entertainment goes, it was great to watch her. You know, watch her playing that way again. Yeah, and you know, especially you know, I we've we've definitely seen with Radwanska with Muguruza as well. I mean, they are they're going to do, and for Kvitova as well. I should say, you know, another semifinalist. Um, they all play their best at Wimbledon. They all play. They all have games that are that are are, are very well suited for grass court tennis. And it, but they also, you know, these players have great games for really all courts, truthfully. And you know, they they've done very well on the hard courts that characterize and take up so much of the calendar as well. Um, it you know for for any of these players projecting forward, it's it's always a bit of a caution, especially now that the the season, the, the women's season, is actually has a, a bit of a longer off season than it, than um, you know in recent years they've they've ended the year right at the end of October. So you're getting about a full two months of recovery and of really distance from this past year before we you know look ahead to to, to the the following season. Um, and I wonder really if that's something that as as nicely as Maria Sharapova's you know run here was too that we'll have to kind of consider in the back of our head um you know it, it's I almost think in a way that Sharapova's it was it was almost just nice to see her playing again after such a, a prolonged absence and really just a you know you you did feel on tour when Sharapova was not there at the US Open and in many of the other tournaments that you know, there was something clearly missing there, and 
it was good, you know, just even for you know a one week here to, to you know to see that back and. But you know, I'm more bullish on someone you know like a Muguruza, even without you know the clearly the Grand Slam winning experience going ahead into 2016, as I am of a Sharapova who it seems that every time we are we are ready to kind of put her back, you know, most directly in comparison to Serena Williams, you know, that's we just end up having pie on our face and kind of wondering why we had this talk in the first place. Yeah, I guess the positive for her is that you know we hadn't seen her for so long, and I, for for me, I'd you know sort of started to wonder is she is she going to get back to where she was? She's you know she's she'll be twenty nine next year, um, and then to see her so, play so well with sort of the same intensity as always, and to talk about how ready she is to to get back and get ready for next year, you really felt like okay, she's going to be a factor next year. Um, of course, Serena not being in Singapore, it allows Maria to shine a little more, put, puts a lot more, you know, she's the star. And, but it was, you know, it was good to have her in that role. Uh, what that means. Yeah, you're right. Muguruza is, is the better long-term story. Um, I just wanted to mention, uh, Redwanska had five unforced errors in the final against Kvitova, a three-set match in which Kvitova had 53 unforced errors, which is not abnormal, but Redwanska played that, you know, sort of that type of match, five un- unforced errors. That's amazing. Five um, versus fifty-three. Yeah. yeah, we'll see if that you know that's not something she's going to do every time. But but um, you know it was if she deserved you know she deserved to win. Yeah, and and you know one more thing while we're talking about this term in particular, and of course we have the men's world tour final coming up down the road. I always wonder if you know f- from from a perspective here, um, it always seems to me that you know I I think. Where we are in the in the little tennis bubble that we occupy, you know, we can have views of tournaments that are completely, uh, you know, at odds with the mainstream view, the, the you know, the typical view of uh, of, a, of a general sports fan about tennis. And you know, I don't think I think I could ask about a hundred people if they were even aware of the season-ending championships for the WTA or when it comes to the ATP, you know, about that event. And I would say about 98 of them would say, um, you know, this is something I clearly didn't even know about, didn't really care to to follow at all. You know, do these year-end championships, are they doing enough to to give themselves sort of the the status, the importance that, yeah, you would think that they clearly deserve. I, th- I think the concept of bringing the top eight players for a round robin um, is good on paper. I just I wonder if you know it's almost sacrilege to think of extending an event. But does you know does an event like this need to be like a two week tournament? Maybe you invite a couple more players, have a have a better round robin sample. You know, does it need to be? Um, you know, played in. You know, does it need to rotate around the world as it as it's gone? Do, you know, do you think these year-end tournaments are really doing enough to kind of you know showcase really what should be a, an important end to the year? I guess I think they do a they do their best. They do a good job of building something that's not an event like a grant the traditional event that everybody knows like the Grand Slam. They, um, you know, the women. When you it's really focused on tennis, you get a good match or you get you know a, a sort of high quality 
um, big name match each time, and there's no real sort of outside interest other than the matches. So in a way, it's focused. It's a great event for a serious tennis fan. Um, you really do. If you watch a week of it, you really get to see all the players. You see them more than once. You really get to feel like you've gotten to watch them and, and see their games well. Um, I'd say the negative is for something like Singapore, and maybe the ATP has been through this and, and come back, where, where they try to expand the game, Tour tries to expand the game in Asia, and you know you end up with even you end up with much less recognition here in, in, in the U.S. and in Europe, the, the big markets, you know, that's the sacrifice. The, the final was on here in the U.S. ESPN 2 at 3 in the morning. Um, and, you know, there, like you said, there was really no, there was, you know, not much awareness of it. Um, and there wouldn't have been probably even if Serena Williams had played. That's true. Uh, yeah. But, the, you know, the ATP came back to London after being in Shanghai. They decided they wanted to, you know, really do the best they could in their biggest market. I think that was... I think that was a smart move, and I think that's paid off. And the, the event has been, you know, bigger and has had more attention than it ever has. You know, maybe the WTA with the, with the new um, with the new president thinks about that. I noticed he said that they want to grow Asia, but they also the tour also wants to grow all the markets. So maybe he's sort of thinking. He said they didn't want to saturate Asia, Steve Simons. So maybe he's also thinking about something like that. You know, I um, otherwise I personally like. The events the way they are, um, and I think they do their best to make them to make them as big and sort of glamorous or glitzy as they can. I don't know what else could be done. It's a little like the Davis Cup. Like I, I think the Davis Cup is great, but then there's also you look at it and say, well, it could be could be more. But you wonder what what exactly um, they would do. From my, I guess, so just from my perspective and the perspective of tennis fans, I think I think they're good events. Yeah, they um, they certainly are. I think, as you say, that you know they're so unique compared to everything else on the year that you know, in a way, that of course sets them apart too and gives them, you know, certainly a, a different type of following, a, a different type of uh, significance than we see otherwise in the year. Um, you know, as I said, ATP will wrap up its year this month. We're you know we're down to. Uh, just a couple of just two events left really we have the Paris Masters this week they'll have a week off and then we'll have uh, the ATP World Tour Finals in London you know, that field is actually already set there's actually there's no movement that could be impacted by Paris aside from an injury um, you know the real story there is is I think just seeing uh, particularly what Novak Djokovic you know if he is uh, conti- can continue to build on what's clearly becoming one of the most historic years in the game. Um, and, and we'll see where that, you know, where that takes him. Is there any early thoughts perhaps on, uh, on Paris? I know we'll, uh, you'll be writing about this a little bit tomorrow, but any early just sort of, you know, perspectives on the, the latest Masters event? I guess when, you, when I'm thinking about Djokovic and what you mentioned, maybe it's now it's Djokovic 2015 versus Federer 2006. If he, if he wins... All of his matches from here to the end, he'll finish 83 and five. Federer in 2006 finished 92 and five, and then you can kind of talk about them. Which one is you can really sort of say which they're very similar, and and which one is the better one? You know, Federer ended up with ended up winning the last year's events. Can Djokovic close it out? You know, he has there's no 
real need for him to do that. He's got number one for the year, and, and this, if anything, he'd probably rather win London than this one. But that's the one, you know, sort of, that's the one little bit of intrigue is, you know, can Djokovic really close out this year, um, on the, you know, the way he's played it the rest of the year. And I don't believe Federer has, has Federer won Bercy? Um, this might be one of the few that he has not won. I think he, I think he Did has he recently won it. I think he's won it, and I I'm going to say I think Rafa hasn't won it, but the, that know, might be it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know, of course, Roger Rafa. They, um, as we as we'll you know make this our our final talking point. Of course, was I, what I think was a very you know you saw Roger and Rafa in the Basel draw earlier this week. You know they've been in the same draw before. They they never met in that uh, tournament. Um, I thought this match really delivered on a, on really kind of all the levels that you want to see. I thought that um, you know it, it was I think a very competitive, well played match. First of all, Federer wins in three sets. I think it had that feel that it was something a lot bigger than just you know an October ATP 500 final. I think both players recognized that this was the first time, and really sort of embraced it that this was the first time that the two were meeting in Switzerland um, you know they've met before in Spain and Madrid uh, maybe one other place by certainly Madrid a few times and Federer has even beaten uh, Rafa in Madrid before um, and you know I thought I thought that sort of came out in the way these two played uh, you, you and I both wrote about this a little bit and you know we both actually started with thinking about really the last time that Roger and Rafa had played. It's been almost two full years, and their careers really have gone in in very different directions since then. Um, Federer coming off a very you know a, what seemed like kind of the season that was going to take him out of the game as we knew him. Uh, Rafa really coming off of a, a multi-slam year, and since then you know the two have gone in different directions. Uh, and I thought this match was was really enjoyable from start to finish. It, it kind of, in a way, reminded me or, or gave me the the impression that this might be the type of match that we're we're never going to see at the uh, at the U.S. Open where you would have such a, a heavy Federer crowd. And um, I thought both you know both men did themselves very well this week. And you know to borrow what I think you might say is that you know this would have been a pretty tough loss for Federer to take, and uh, you know he gets it done in the end. Yeah, he felt like this was one he you know he really wanted or he almost had to win. He he's been better this year, the last two years. Um, he was at home. This was an indoor hard court. He won the first set. He had a good chance and had chances in the second. Um, and then he looked like he had chances in the third, and then it, suddenly it looked like Rafa could sneak it out. Um, and maybe that's what you would have expected, judging by their past. But but Federer, um, you know, closed it out well. And but I think Nadal played the best match I've seen him. One of the better matches he's played this year, the best match of this week. Uh, he just was a different player because of maybe his just his knowledge of Federer's game and what he needs to do. He has he has very specific purpose and a, a, almost a different way of playing. He doesn't even need to think as much when he plays. When he plays Roger, he knows exactly what he needs to do, um, and I think that came out. And you know, he said he felt like he he played well and he was happy with it. And it made me think that, um, you know, in 2014, maybe we thought 
Federer was going to continue to go down and Nadal would dominate him from then on. That didn't happen. Um, and then maybe this year we'd have thought, well, Nadal's on the way down and now Federer is going to continue. But maybe now after this match you look at it, well, they both could look good for you know, at least another year, if not more. Federer's talking about 2018. Uh, there's no reason to think now, looking at Nadal this fall, that he's not going to come back and play He's, he's not going to come back and play well and challenge. He's still number six in the world. The one thing that let him down at the end was his forehand, which has let him down this year, and it did at the end. Maybe that was the difference. that He wouldn't have missed a few of the forehands that he did. Um, he didn't come up with quite have the answers that he has against Federer in the past. Um, we'll see if he ever, you know, we'll see if just that's the way he plays from now on. He's just not quite what he was or whether he's on his way back to something better. Yeah, I mean, I think overall the take you know the takeaway, kind of looking at the you know we've mentioned a, a variety of player players in the Big Four era and and where their careers have have gone at various points and and the theme to me is that these guys are all of them are so good enough that we kind of have to expect the unexpected from each of them. Um, I think we've written off pretty much everybody at a certain point or another. Murray, Djokovic. Um, you know, Djokovic never going to capitalize on his great potential. He's done some obviously amazing things since then. Roger and Rafa, we've had the old bits written uh, by various people at various times. Uh, it's what I think has made this group such a, you know, such an impressive bunch. Not even just when they're, you know, when they are playing well, uh, which is often, but you know, when they have not played well, when they've gotten into these prolonged slumps, they've inevitably been able to get out of them and uh, I think you know we you know we mentioned earlier about Muguruza looking ahead to 2016 you know the Rafa 2016 and even the remainder of this year for him I think is very compelling to see where he goes from there Um, and I think we'll leave it at that because we'll have more time to discuss the uh, last men's events of the year later on Uh, so for Steve Tegner this is Ed McGrogan thank you for listening to the Tennis.com podcast You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.